Hi, Alan Weiss here with the Uncomfortable Truth. You know, I was in the Amtrak station in Providence a week or two ago, and uh, I saw a young guy, looked like a hippie out of the 60s. He had a bedraggled backpack and sandals on and scraggly hair and a beard and sort of (laughs) indeterminate clothing, and he was clearly lost in the train station. He didn't know where to go next, and an Amtrak police officer came over, and the officer, as opposed to what I thought he might do, which was try to hustle the guy out or ask him what his business was, calmly said to him, well, what are you looking for? Which train? And showed him the stairway and walked him partially, uh, partial way over to that stairway. Uh, I found that extraordinarily uh, nice uh, to serve and protect. It was uh, very gracious of the officer. He did not assume that this guy was damaged just because of the way he looked. On Main Street in my town here in East Greenwich, once a year, I forget what the cause is, but it's a charity, a a disease. The firemen, uh, the firefighters come out in the middle of the street in front of the main firehouse with one of these big boots, you know, a firefighter's big boot, and they collect money, and cars slow down on Main Street, and they drop money in the hat, and you get a, a sign from the firefighters. You put it in your dash, and so they don't try to stop you again. It's pretty funny, uh, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, and here's, again, people who put their lives on the line every day uh, doing good work. First responders are the same way. I find that EMTs are particularly uh, attentive and explain things and are very nice. And again, uh, pressured work, pressurized work. Uh, on the uh, news shows, though, uh, you see the um, police officer uh, who shoots someone. Um, without justification. You see the, uh, the crooked firefighter who claims disability even though he or she wasn't hurt on the job. You see the EMT who sexually abuses uh, someone who's in the bus, in the ambulance. That's because the news shows dwell on bad news, and they show an exception, a stark exception, to try to make the news. They assume that people are damaged. We see the executive who's cheating on his or her own company, taking money, inflating profits, a bonus not deserved. We see the athlete, and you hear about the athlete who's taking performance-enhancing drugs or who makes some kind of racial comment or slur. We hear and see about the writer who plagiarizes, who's taken words from someone else's work, from someone else's book. Yet all of these people who make the news like this are stark minorities. They don't at all represent the greater amount of people in their professions and pursuits and businesses who try to lead good lives. There was a a just and correct outrage over priests who engaged in pedophilia and child abuse and the bishops who hid them and covered for them. Yet the total number of priests who were involved It was less than 5% of everyone in the priesthood. The average uh, of public school teachers in New York alone who are charged with sexual abuse and inappropriate behavior with students exceeds 5%. We hear about Occupy Wall Street, which never went anywhere because no one knew what the process was after that. What were they representing? But Wall Street was a demon. That metaphorical Wall Street was a demon. The top 1%, whatever that means, demonized. 
Black lives matter, but so do white lives. So do all lives matter, not just black lives. And white privilege? I must have missed that line when I was growing up. I never did see it and still don't. You know, the, the media would have us believe that we're all guilty of something, that all of us should be ashamed, that we've all done something terrible. The latest revelations triggered by the Harvey Weinstein scandal, which are indeed horrid. You know, you don't have to have, as a man, a sister or wife or mother to be outraged by this kind of behavior. You should be outraged, period. But 99% of men aren't harassing women. All men aren't guilty. We have to draw the line somewhere. We have to use some proportion. That might be an uncomfortable truth, but it's nonetheless a truth. You see, the default can't be mistrust. The default mechanism has to be trust. Otherwise, how do we get through the day? If our initial reaction, our visceral reaction, is to assume the other person is damaged and not to trust them. I try never to begin from that position, that the other person is damaged. Why does a consultant assume it's the buyer's fault when the consultant walks in the door at the first meeting and immediately assumes, well, I can fix this, this buyer has it all wrong. Well, the buyer was smart enough to call you in. Why is it that the buyer has caused the problem based on a 20-minute discussion and you haven't seen anything else yet? If you're cynical and mistrusting and suspicious and anticipate conspiracies, you're paranoid. That's all there is to it. Because that's not the way the world works, and if you think it does work that way, there's something wrong with you. I used to work for Merck, a pharmaceutical company, another part of our society that comes over great attack for inflated prices and for drugs that are too expensive or hard to get or don't work. Yet the pharmaceutical companies invest billions of dollars a year, literally billions of dollars a year in research, because most of the drugs that they produce are not approved. And rightly so. They have to be absolutely safe. And so you have to try to make a lot of drugs and have them tested thoroughly and meet FDA approval before you can even begin to sell them. I worked for five or six pharma, consultants, uh, pharma companies as a consultant, and Merck was the finest one I worked for. Roy Vagelos was the CEO at the time. And one day he was in L.A. on business when a Puerto Rican plant exploded. Merck had a plant in Puerto Rico, still do, I believe, but a lot of pharma companies do. They employ about 100,000 people down there, and there was great disruption after this most recent hurricane. Pharmaceutical companies went to extraordinary measures to get their people to work so that they could pr produce these important drugs. They cleared roads. Uh, they tried to escort them into work if they didn't have transportation and so forth. In any case, there was an explosion in the Puerto Rican plant, and Vagelos immediately changed his plans, and he flew from L.A. to San Juan, went to the plant, visited the families of the people who had died. Two or three people died, and then many were injured. He visited all the families, expressed his regrets, provided for whatever financial compensation and support they needed, and showed everyone that he was intensely engaged with what happened there and felt that he had a responsibility. Merck also, in trying to find a, a new drug in that period, produced one that didn't work for its intended purpose, but cured African river blindness. African river blindness at the time was a scourge in Africa. It was blinding and harming tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. 
And they couldn't afford a drug to cure it, even if one had existed. Well, now one did exist, and Merck gave it away. And African river blindness was, for all practical purposes, obliterated, annihilated, removed. Hewlett-Packard, when I worked for them, took great pains to allow those who were disabled and incapacitated to work. I would pull into their parking lot at the beginning of a day, and I'd watch a van pull up, and a woman was driving the van with some kind of remote controls, and she'd slide open the side door remotely and come out in her wheelchair with a guide dog, and she'd guide the wheelchair with a straw that she had. The dog would trot alongside, and she'd go into the building in a special entrance that accommodated her, put in her workday. Hewlett Packard was great at this stuff. A man named Lowell Anderson was CEO at Allianz Insurance in Minneapolis. And one year, there was a tremendous, uh, profitably, profitable year for the company. Uh, but the people who shared in the bonus were basically the uh, sales force and some of the uh, executives. And he felt terrible that employees were not sharing in that by company policy. And he asked me what I thought we could do. And he and I chatted about it and realized he had some discretionary money. And he could give every salaried employee who didn't qualify for a bonus $100. It was the beginning of December. And they could use the $100 toward Christmas. And he said to me, you know, it's not that much. I said, yes, but it's a great token. It's a great gesture. It's a great sign of appreciation. And he announced this by surprise one morning over the PA system. And he and I walked out into the hallways. And we, he had said during the announcement that the $100 uh, coupon was available for all salary employees in human resources, and they should stop by when they got a chance during the day. And when we walked out to the hall, for about a minute, nothing happened. And we wondered if it was a successful offer, in fact, even if it had been heard. And all of a sudden, we heard a pounding on the stairs, and several elevator bells rung, and the elevator doors flew open, and the stairwell doors flew open, and scores of people headed for human resources. And as they passed Lowell by, they thanked him profusely. And for days, people thanked him profusely for that $100 gesture to all of them. He had tears in his eyes. So did I. That's what business can be like. That's what we don't see on the news. What we need is trust, because we want others to trust us. And the uncomfortable truth is, if we start from a position where we don't trust others and we think they're damaged, that's how people will start with us. When you think you're the last honest person, you're actually the main character in the book, The Last Angry Man. You need to get out of that novel. You need to figure out that the world is really a good place if you help make it so. That might be tough, but that's the uncomfortable truth. Mm-hmm.